Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. Water is a complicated element. It heals, destroys, rescues, erases, it drowns, it saves, it holds memory, it washes away pain. This is one of the opening scenes in The Ripple, The Wave That Carried Me Home, a new play running at the Yale Repertory Theater through May 20th. The play follows a family of aquatic activists across decades, pushing for equity and access for pools. Today on Where We Live, we learn more about the history of racism at beaches and pool clubs here in Connecticut. Andrew Carl is the author of the story of Ned Cole and the battle for America's most exclusive shoreline. He'll join us, plus one organization working to increase access to swim lessons in the state. But first, we get to preview The Ripple. Joining me now is playwright Christina Anderson, whose most recent and award-winning work titled The Ripple, The Wave That Carried Me Home, is running at the Yale Repertory Theater through May 20th, as well as Tamala Woodard, who directed the play. She's also the chair of the acting program at, at the David Geffen School of Drama at Yale. Thank you, both of you, for joining us this morning. Thank you for having us. Hello. And just a reminder for our listeners, you can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Christina, we want to start with you. This play spans decades in order to show this family's impact and to phone in a lot of important historical context. Can you talk to us a little bit about what inspired you to write this play and what were your thoughts about structuring it? Uh, yeah, well, um, the idea for the play came to me because I was interested in writing about water um, in some capacity. Uh, and so as I was um, thinking about that topic, I was doing a bunch of research, watching documentaries, movies. Um, I was looking at environmental justice or um, environmental injustice, um, climate change. Uh, and uh, just the element of water as a spiritual uh, entity, uh, poetry, literary things. And then I came across this book called Contested Waters, which looked at the history of public pools in America. And in reading that book and also looking into the history of segregated pools uh, in this country, um, I knew that this was a play I had to write because I grew up in Kansas City, Kansas, uh, and um, I didn't have access to pools. And a lot of people in my family didn't know how to swim. And it had never even occurred to me that any kind of segregation or social or political policy could have played a part in my not having access to those resources. So that's when I knew that this was a play that I had to write. And can you tell us about, we're obviously going to dive deep into, into the play in a little bit, but I would love for you to share with us, how did you come up with the title of the play? Because when I first saw the word ripple, the, of course, I'm like, oh, water, duh. Um, but then I thought ripples of 
racism in terms of the mm-hmm. context. So I'm very curious to hear the story behind the story. Yeah, well, you know, when I when I usually start a play, I often give it um, an AKA title, like also known as, or in some cases, like a dummy title. And for a very long time, this play was just a water play. Um, and, it, and even as I was writing it, because the thing that I like to do is to finish the first draft and get a sense of what the play is doing in a literal sense, but also metaphorically. Uh, And so uh, once uh, the protagonist in the play, Janice, um, and kind of goes through her childhood memories of having these parents who were consistently fighting for access to pools, and she was being asked to return home, um, I just, the the title just kind of came to me um, and how this initial request for her to return home and reckon with her family past turned into a small phone call and all of a sudden it created like these waves of memories for her. Um, and so that's really kind of how the title came to me. And Tamala, I want to ask you before we get to staging, how did you think about the casting for this play? You know, we understand it was mostly Yale alumni, including Christina, of course. So what role did that play behind your decisions in terms of the casting? Um, you know, um, talks about community and one's responsibility to a community and um, a lot of the concern that I have in leading the program, the acting program, is how do we create a strong community um, uh, and lift each other up um, towards our own particular um, uh, artistic goals. And so it it seems like a really wonderful opportunity for us with Christina um, being an alumni and me being an alumni to actually invite um, back to the school um, people who were part of our larger community um, as we were in, you know, um, um, thinking about like, how do we, how do we reflect back, um, uh, what the responsibility of one, one person, um, to, a to a larger group. So that was, that was a sort of idea about having, uh, as large of an alumni presence as possible, people who could, who could bring some experience back to the school that they'd had and also come, uh, you know, participate in the love that exists in this very, I think, healthy community that is the David Geffen School drama right now. So that's an, that was part of it. No, that sounds beautiful. And I think we can already hear the love as we're about six minutes into this conversation. Uh, We did open a show uh, with an intro, and I want to continue to listen to that scene that we just heard a snippet of earlier. And Christina mentioned Janice. So this is the clip that we're going to meet the character Janice. Let's take a listen. March. 1956, there are three public pools in Beacon, Kansas. Brookside is for the Negroes. The Gregory Lane and Sunray are not. The Gregory Lane is the finest swimming experience the city offered white folks. A tank the length of six Cadillacs, concrete decks and plush grassy lawns, Sunray wasn't as nice, but it was far from pathetic. Brookside was located in a black neighborhood occupied by folks who were referred to as the thinking class. Thinking class blacks, meaning middle class families. My mama's side of the family lived in this neighborhood. Years prior, the family petitioned the city to build a pool, demanding Negroes had just as much right as the white folks to recreate to subdue the evil consequences of integration, the city built Brookside 
It wasn't as nice as Sunrep, but it was clean and respectable, a symbol of achievement. My grandfather gave black children free swim lessons every summer. It was a time when every young person in Beacon could learn how to swim. Tamala, can you respond to this early, very powerful moment in the play being introduced to this family through our protagonist, Janice? It's so nice to hear Janine's voice and, uh, you know, <laughs> it's so it's so um, just passionate and expressive. So um, I was just thinking about like, wow, it's, <laughs> it's just doing such a beautiful job. Um, this opening is... It, there's one woman that enters the stage, you know, and um, takes up all this space to say, like, I'm going to tell you the story. I'm going to I'm going to tell you the, my personal story, the story of my lineage and my family. And it's just such a powerful um, uh, um, provocation, um, invitation from Christina to allow a black woman um a uh, uh, voice and body to take up that space, that narrative space, and to take the time to talk with us, to make us her intimates, her um, uh, um, confidants um, in that space. And I, I just really enjoyed the work that Janine did um, on the words of the play and invoking both a kind of like historical, like, you know, she's she's throwing us back in time um, to 1956 um, with her strong opinions <laughs> about um, that time and that world and that movement. And it's just really, and it's also funny um, in, in, in her uh, uh, engagement with us. And I, I think she just does a fantastic job. Right, and I was going to say, if she's listening, uh, Janine, you woke me up just then. <laughs> um, and you mentioned the you know the power behind that voice. And so, Christina, I want to ask you, too, you know, how did you think about the tone and the pacing of the scripting? We just heard uh, two different dialogues. There's a very poetic flow in and out of the dialogues, the internal monologues, and this sort of very narrative scene setting that Janice just did for us. You know, what was your thought process behind that? Um, yeah, well, you know, I uh, am very interested in very robust um, athletic, uh, I, I don't know, gym, gymnastical. I don't know if that's a word. Um, it's a word now. Language. Okay, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you heard it here um, today. Yes, I created it right here live. Um, yeah, well, and, 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 you know, I'm just really interested in how language can exist on stage in a very theatrical, musical, poetic way. Um, you know, when I was uh, 15, I was really interested in spoken word. Uh, a lot of the early poets I loved were Sonia Sanchez. And um, and I don't know if you've ever seen her perform her poetry live, but it's very visceral and musical um, and, uh, and, and muscular. Uh, and so I think that um, that type of writing has just always um, existed across my body of work. Um, and particularly with this play, um, you know, because Janice uh, speaks to us as the audience um, for a good chunk of the play, um, you know, I was really interested, uh, like a stage direction that I have in the script is, um, is the play kind of moves like swimming. Um, it takes the whole body, uh, the mind and the spirit uh, to, to bring this play to life. And I'm also very just uh, super proud of Janine because it's not an easy part. And it takes a lot of skill and a lot of presence um, 
to uh to to capture this language and paint this world mostly through language um so uh so so yeah that's really how i engage with uh that practice of putting language on stage well i love that you mentioned spoken word because i did i did get that feeling that very powerful poetic um sort of vibe that does remind me of spoken word and i want to ask you know of course you're the playwright for the play but what were your initial thoughts when you read it through you know what was going through your mind um, well, you know, it, it's funny because this play was originally a commission with Berkeley Repertory Theater um, out there in Berkeley. And um, and I remember I finished the first draft and I was like, I'm not 100 percent sure this is a play, but like I wrote it and I enjoyed writing it. Um, and so I sent it to the dramaturg out there, Madeline Odom, and um, and she read the play and she she sent she emailed me back and she was like, yeah, this is a play. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay, that's good to know. Uh, and then I had a workshop in New York of it. And that was the first time that we put it on his feet. Um, and Robbie McCauley, who uh, just passed away a couple of years ago, um, she uh, she really gave me the gift of seeing the potential of this play existing uh, in actors' bodies, like in a theatrical space. Um, so, you know, I, I was compelled to write it. I had a very good time engaging with these characters and creating this world. But yeah, that initial draft, I was like, I'm not entirely sure what this is, but you know, here it is world. I mean, oftentimes I feel I opened up a Microsoft doc, there's a title in there, I'm good, you know? So yeah. we, we, we need that person to tell us <laughs> that we're doing something. Uh, Tamala, I wanna ask you the same question too. You know, what were your first thoughts when you were reading this screenplay? Uh, reading this play for the theater, I, I was just, just so captivated by the language. If you see it on the page, it's also a roadmap on the page. And it's like, um, it was, you know, I, I was obsessed. <laughs> I think I'm still obsessed with just like understanding what the map of the play was. What's the invitation? Just really squeezing dry every opportunity that Christina has embedded in the play for the how of it for like how is this supposed to be an offering to the community in which it 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 um it stands each time so that was i was really obsessed with with um the 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 rhythm of the language like the song of it and how you know how do we bring that forward um to an audience that was really my first obsession there's a line in the uh play at the very very end um that helen speaks um in a letter to her daughter um um that speak that talks about her disappointment um in her community and her country that just like just pierced me in my heart and um and uh i it it became um also the thing that i just would keep going back to that i knew that this moment that when it was spoken out loud that there would be many many people many black people who had this feeling like somebody said something incredibly true that as citizens of this country as as fellow hopers and dreamers of the ideal put forth um, that that we've been profoundly disappointed in, in, in many times. Well, I think the flow is, is flowing because we do have that clip ready to go and for our listeners to hear. So let's take a listen to Helen, uh, which is a, a bite towards the end of the play. I had dreams for Brookside when I was your age. Well, I wanted to start an all-black swim team at my high school. My daddy would be head coach, and I would be the captain of a position I'd earn, of course. 
We go on to win local and national competitions. And when I return to Beacon after college, I take over as head coach when Daddy retires. In my life plan right now would be my, my 15th season as head coach. In my plan, I give you the gift of knowing water's power and peace. I'm so disappointed in my hometown, my own country, the simplicity of my desires. It breaks my heart to have to sit in that courtroom, to have to fight for the simplicity of freedom, of joy. So, Tamala, you just mentioned that oh gosh, clip yes. and we just listened to it. What are your thoughts? Yeah, it, that's exactly that thought. Like, why to fight for the simplicity of freedom and joy? That That is that's that that is the line that I just kept like it's just ringing like a bell in my ear. Um, the first time that I read it and, 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 and I, you know, turned the page back over and start at the beginning, knowing that that's where we're going. It really, it does. I mean, it just, it's, it, it, it elicits right now an emotional response um, from me um, to think that um, just because of the color of one's skin um, that there are, you are restricted from the full um, uh, freedoms um, of your own uh, body and recreation <laughs> of leisure and education um, uh, that is enjoyed by uh, other people. Well, I think there's something really powerful about this idea that you know pe- people have to fight for this right to to have recreation and to play. And, and Christina, I feel like the theme of what we've been talking about is it's power, it's it's disappointment, and this is just as much about the broad sweeps of history as it is an intimate portrait of a family. So, can you tell us how you were able to sort of wove that historical elements with the personal and and I guess sort of humanize what's going on? Um, yeah, I mean, you know, the short answer is I don't know. Um, I just kind of follow uh <laughs> um the people in the play, uh, and 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 once I have a sense of their relationships and who they are to each other and the conflicts they have, the secrets they have, um, I start to pursue that. And um and and in in a larger sense, uh, you know, I also am a student of history. Uh, you know, that's it's been that way since I was a kid. Like my mother was very into Motown and um like soul music and Stevie Wonder. And, you know, yes, I would listen to the records with her, but then I would also try to figure out, you know, like how did Motown get started? Like who is Barry Gordy? So, you know, I was always um, curious about the context around humans um, historically, particularly in this country in America, um, and I think that just uh, continued uh, as I was starting to shape these plays and um, shape my body of work, and it's also continued here uh, with the ripple of the wave. Um, you know, I was uh, I've always been interested in the children of activists, um, so you know the children of Malcolm X of MLK. Um, and sort of the impact uh, and uh, the challenges, but also the successes and victories and the losses that those children experience having activist parents. Um, So once uh, I knew that that was also an element in the play, um, I started to uh, just try to find ways to weave this um, activism 
uh, this practice of uh, fighting for access and um, and how it affected this family personally. Um, and so I just kind of followed that through the first draft. Um, so it was very much instinctual writing. It was very much consistently staying present with who these people were and knowing what they were up against. Um, so that's probably the, those are probably the three ingredients that uh, combined to kind of create this first draft. You've been listening to playwright Christina Anderson, whose most recent and award-winning work called The Ripple, The Wave That Carried Me Home, is running at the Yale Repertory Theater through May 20th. You were also listening to Tamala Woodard. She is the director of the play, as well as the chair of the acting program at David Geffen School of Drama at Yale. We'll be continuing this conversation after a quick break voting in Connecticut's own history of the so-called Sand Curtain. You can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. This hour, we're previewing a new play currently on run at the Yale Repertory Theater called The Ripple, The Wave That Carried Me Home. It's about a family of aquatic activists pushing for equality in access or equity in access to pools. The play is set in Ohio, but Connecticut has its own history of discrimination at pool clubs and beaches. Joining us now to discuss is Andrew Carl. He's a history professor at the University of Virginia and author of Free the Beaches, the story of Ned Cole and the battle for America's most exclusive shoreline. Thank you so much, Andrew, for joining us today. Thank you for having me. And just to remind our listeners that you can also give us a call, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So, Andrew, first of all, can you tell our listeners who may not know um, a little bit about the late Ned Cole and why is he such an integral part of the story about racism on Connecticut beaches? Yeah, so Ned Cole was um, a social activist um, based in Hartford in the 1960s um, who was um, running a nonprofit organization aimed at addressing um, the various deprivations and challenges facing um, African-Americans living on the city's north end including some of the challenges um, for access to outdoor recreation during the summer. Um, this was a time really where, you know, cities like Hartford, New Haven, and across um, the U.S. had um, underinvested in recreation, including swimming pools and parks in African-American neighborhoods. Um, you had um, a spate of drowning deaths of African-American youth in um, water, dangerous waterways um, you know, that children would seek out for lack of other options. And um, he decided at a certain point to, um, and really, you know, at the prodding of many of the African-American parents, mothers um, who lived in these neighborhoods, to try to find ways to expand access to um, and try to provide ways to provide trips for for children to um, go to the shoreline of Connecticut, you know, one of, you know, one of the many um, you know, beaches along this, um, the Long Island Sound. 
Um, but when they began um, taking these trips down to the beach, um, they um, you know, realized that there was very few places that they could access. Uh, much of the state shoreline was effectively off limits to the um, broader public. Um, they were either um, private beaches or they were beaches that were um, only and practically available to uh, residents of those towns. Um, and so that really began his um, activism on this issue and the work that, um, you know, hundreds of um, other fellow activists, as well as the parents and the children who were involved in his organization, Revitalization Corps, really um, you know, dedicated themselves to trying to um, make that shoreline open to the public. And we're having this conversation today because we're talking about play that's re- that's related to to this story. Um, can you but can you share with us a little bit about how did Ned Cole change some of this? You know, what were his impacts? Well, he certainly put this issue at the you know the front of the you know public's consciousness. I mean, this was um, you know you know at the time you know he was a very um, controversial activist. He um, did a lot of um, you know. You know, did, you know, took a lot of measures that attracted attention, attracted controversy, but got people talking about it and got people thinking about this question about recreational access and equity and and the real um, consequences that that um, the lack of access has had for um, underprivileged um, youth in the state and across the nation. And so I think in that sense, you know, it really kind of you know built momentum ultimately toward um, further action down the road um, in Connecticut, in particular, um, culminating in a uh, landmark decision in 2001 by the state Supreme Court that de- um, declared the use of these um, sort of resident-only beach access um, laws to be unconstitutional. Um, so there has been really effort, and there continues to be activism on. On this issue, there are groups and organizations um, today who are continuing to fight to ensure that um, that, the, that the state shoreline is available to the public. And it must be said that, um, legally speaking, um, the beach belongs to all of us. I mean, this is public land, um, and so I think you know this was an issue that you know he took up you know with a, with an eye toward um, the the challenges and deprivations that um, black youth in Hartford were facing. But I think it was one that ultimately, you know, um, was you know, resonated with a broader segment of um, the state's population. Well, and I know you just mentioned, uh, you know, his impact was was huge. And this is a conversation that's still happening. But can you tell us a little bit about how does this legacy of racism, um, how is that still continuing on the Connecticut coast or at pool clubs, especially you know, there's a policy in 2001. Has things changed since then, or are there things that still remain the same? Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, I think you really do continue to see um, a lot of exclusionary practices um, in among shoreline towns, and and more and moreover, you really um, have seen you know over the last several decades, not just in Connecticut but across the U.S., uh, a disinvestment in public recreation more. Gen- Generally, um, you know, as cities have um, strained under, um, you know, budget cuts, usually the first thing that gets cut are recreational budgets, um, or oftentimes, you know, if if even um, you know sw- public swimming pools are pro- um, being provided to the public, they're often you know on a fee basis, which can exclude um, lower income families, and so you know this is um, remains very much a problem, and we see that manifest in these um, the real you know the the differential access to outdoor recreation, and also as well you know the lack of um, you know water safety programs and schools that results in the types of tragedies that um, often you know really have um, disproportionately affected um, people of color in America. 
And still with us is playwright Christina Anderson, whose most recent and award-winning work called The Ripple, The Wave That Carried Me Home, is currently running at the Yale Repertory Theater through May 20th, as well as Tamala Woodard, who's the director of the play, as well as the chair of the acting program at the David Geffen School of Drama at Yale. I just want to bring both of you back into the conversation, You know, starting with Christina can you respond to some of the history that Andrew just shared with us here? Anything that jumped out to you? Well, uh, first of all, I'm excited to read this book. So as soon as we end this conversation, I'm going to go buy it uh, if it's available, Andrew. Um, and uh, it's it's a powerful um, story that I wasn't aware of, but I think it um, is definitely in conversation uh, with the things that inspired me to write this play um, and this notion that uh, that recreation and play um, can be uh, policed or dictated um, by our uh, uh, like um, local politics or, or red tape or bureaucracy um, is, is really the thing that uh, that you know quite frankly enraged me. Um, you know, I think as human beings that we are a very delicate balance of multiple elements, and um, and one of those elements is relaxation. Uh, and, and joy and play uh, and to uh, have an active part of our communities who are determined to deny that, you know, it's either going to come out in other ways or people are going to seek it um, because I think it's such a natural part of our rhythms as uh, human beings. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I have to admit it's, uh, it, it, it's, it, it angers me to know that that fight um continues and even as recently as 2001 that is a fight that uh and yeah and even to today that it's a fight that's still um one that people have to pick up and tamala i want to ask you the same questions too um anything that jumped out to you with what andrew just shared with us the the way that we um you know the 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 language of prohibition <laughs> and how that changes you know um, and the overtness of uh, of prohibition, and that we keep finding ways um, to dehumanize um, people by prohibiting them from basic basic um, human activities and 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 the the right to recreate, as Christina said, like it's like there are things that we need as humans, and um, it is a denial of one's humanity, I think, to prohibit access um to something that is like literally in your backyard um so that that's um andrew i i agree i can't wait to to read the book and being a new member of this community just it it astounds me that even a, a beach that you can walk on to <laughs> that you can be um, prohibited from entering that space and I kind of want to ask a reverse question for Andrew, actually, you know, listening to what Christina and Tamala just shared, you know, what are your surprises when you were doing this research? I mean, this is your area, of course, but anything that jumped out to you? Well, I think it's worth mentioning, I mean, that, you know, this, you know, 
oftentimes, it, you know, in popular imagination, we think of kind of Jim Crow segregation and the sort of um, the ways in which, you know, public life was segregated in America as being a, a Southern phenomenon. Um, I think, you know, this this history of, of segregation along the Connecticut shoreline really reminds us, and I think as well, the, the, the play here set in Ohio really reminds us that Jim Crow was a national phenomenon. Um, it took on different forms in Connecticut. You know, it was, there were not whites only beaches. There were just resident only beaches. And it just so happened that the residents of those towns were all white because they had exclusionary housing policies that prevented people of color from living in them. So there was a lot of various mechanisms of segregation that um, pervaded across the country and still do so to this day. And I think, you know, one thing that is worth sort of thinking about here is the way that, you know, the privatization of public space in America, the disinvestment in public facilities and services has really um, worked to resegregate these aspects of American life and in practical terms have denied uh, many Americans of these basic human rights. And I think, you know, we need to think of recreation uh, as a basic human right and um, and sort of, you know, prioritize it in ensuring that people actually have meaningful access to those opportunities. And Christina, you mentioned this just a little bit earlier that you you've done you've done research. But can you also give us a, another glimpse of the research of racism at pools and beaches um, that was involved in terms of uncovering the historical context for your play? Um, yeah, well, you know, um, I, I just want to say that Andrew's point about um, how uh how these uh like these beaches were residents only but um at the same time they also only allowed um I'm paraphrasing Andrew but they only allowed like white folks to uh be residents in these areas um you know I think also a lot of the historical research that I was doing was kind of looking at that web of um of strategies and uh operations that played a part and kind of funneled back to um, pool access and access to swimming. Um, you know, uh, because I grew up in Kansas City, Kansas, I was really interested in um, a landlocked state uh, and how and, and man-made pools and the decision for a city to build a pool or not build a pool or to uh, have literal access to shutting down those pools. Um, uh, and, uh, uh, because part of the play is Janice goes back to her hometown in Kansas. Um, and so, uh, so historically speaking and in the research that I was doing is just like all these, um, uh, you know, for lack of a better term, like fence posts, uh, that lined up to, uh, to ensure this denial, um, to access, uh, so, um, you know, just on a, a like gender based, uh, skin based, location based, geography based, um, you know, uh, the, the, there's a point in the play where Janice talks about her grandfather and how he was able to kind of pick up kids, uh, black children throughout the city and transport them to the pools uh, because, you know, transportation can also be an issue. Um, so uh, I, I really appreciate Andrew's point where he talks about um, just the multiple ways uh that uh, that that denial and access can exist um, in communities. And on that note, Tamala, I want to ask you: Can you tell us a little bit about Helen Collin and Edward or Edwin Collin Jr. and sort of the kind of generational conversation about their legacy that you're working on the play, and especially with this idea of political inheritance as well? 
Well, I think Christina is probably going to do a better job at that <laughs> than I am. You both can. Um, we have a couple of yeah, minutes left, but yeah. please go for it. We'll, we'll tag team. I, what I find really um, compelling as the as you know a, a reader of Christina's work is um, is how how different generations engage um, in the conversation about responsibility to a community. And um, thinking back on my, uh, you know, my my particular my family and I was raised in Texas, um, and uh, th- that in Texas the revolutionary thing, you know, for my particular uh, parents um, uh, was to move out of a kind of rural setting into a city setting, begin to own businesses, you know, and actually be um, citizens. Um, uh, uh, business owners in their in their community, and then for me, my art is my politics, and um, I really resonated with um, uh, Edwin's uh, his his obsession water. That was his politics, and Janice um, um, saying that water is no longer my politics, and and finding um, a way to think of the value of herself in a community that's outside of her own parents' obsession. So I really, really just resonated with the struggle um, between those, between Janice and her uh, parents' obsession and her own desire to find her own agency. And Christina, oh, I was going to say, Christina, really quickly, do you want to add to that? Uh, Yeah, well, um, you know, also to add to that, you know, Janice uh, was an only child. She was raised by her mother, Helen, and her father, Edwin, um, in this uh, Kansas town, um, and uh, to really kind of explore like a smaller family um, and the impact of the work that her parents were doing to give access to swimming. Um, And and also uh, the ways that they encourage and influence uh, Janice's journey in activism uh, from the time that she's eight years old. Um, and, and and their hopes and wishes uh, for the access that they wanted to give their daughter, but also to the community in the larger aspect and the complications that come with that, but also the successes. Um, so just to add to Tamla's uh, words about generational impact, uh, the things that we give to our descendants, the things that we accept or sometimes refuse from our ancestors, um, that also exists in the play. You've been listening to playwright Christina Anderson and Tamala Woodard, who's the director of The Ripple, The Wave That Carried Me Home. And you are also listening to Andrew Carl, who is a history professor at the University of Virginia and author of Free the Beaches, the story of Ned Cole and the battle for America's most exclusive shoreline. Thank you so much for your time today, Andrew. Thank you for having me. And we'll link Andrew's conversation with Kalila Brown-Dean on Connecticut Public Radio's Disrupted. Find that on our website at ctpublic.org slash where we live. And coming up, we'll be hearing from LEAP, an organization that helps with providing access and equity to pools. You can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live.
This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. This hour, we've been hearing all about the push for everyone, not just wealthy communities, to have access to pools and beaches. But what does that aquatic activism look like in our state? One one organization is focused on increasing access to swim lessons. And joining me now is Henry Fernandez. He's the executive director of Leap for Kids in New Haven, a nonprofit that stands for leadership, education, and athletics in partnership, as well as Ryan Rooks, who's the aquatics director for Leap. Thank you both for joining us today. Thank you so much for having us. And just a reminder for our listeners that you can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. And Henry, I want to start with you. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about LEAP's mission? Oh, Henry might not be there. Um, Can we switch switch to uh, Ryan real quick, actually? Do you mind just uh, telling us a little bit about LEAP's mission while we try to get Henry on? Yes. Um, so Leap's mission is to provi- provide a safe haven for underrepresented um, youth in our community. And we provide different resources and programming for them, which includes swimming, cooking, um, arts and crafts, poetry, etc. I think Henry might be back on. Henry, are you there? I am. All right. Well, Ryan just gave us a quick overview about Leap's mission, but I'm wondering if there's anything else you'd like to add to that. I'm sure Ryan did a great job. (laughs) I'll leave it at that. All right. Well, um, as you've been um, hearing the conversation over the hour, I want to ask you, Henry, uh, you know, what are your thoughts about about anything that jumped out to you, actually, just from the conversation? Yeah, I I mean, I think it it really does parallel um, with the work that... uh, that we uh, do at LEAP. I mean, that the history of segregation of uh, swimming pools and beaches um, has led to a segregation in who swims um, in, in the United States and in Connecticut. Um, and, and that uh, has deadly effect, actually. So black kids we know from the um, uh, CDC are three times more likely to drown in a swimming pool, I'm sorry, three times more likely to drown, seven times uh, more likely to drown in a swimming pool than um, white children, and it's about access. Um, And so a lot of what we try to do is um, make available opportunities for kids to learn to swim. And so tens of thousands of kids have learned to swim over the years at LEAP, and that's a really important part of, uh, of all that we do. And Henry, I'm curious about your thoughts. I mean, we just mentioned it right now, really, but just about the importance of aquatic activism. Kind of ask sort of a uh, an obvious question here, but is this still very much needed? It is. Swimming is actually an, is interesting because we have so many legacies of Jim Crow and of slavery and and of discrimination in our country that will take a very very long time to resolve. But swimming is unique because if we can teach children to swim, they'll make sure their children swim, right? That it's, it's one of these things that we can simply uh, break that history um, by uh, providing access uh, to swim lessons and by, by providing access to pools. And that can't just be, um, uh, 
that can't just be access in that, oh, you can do it, but it costs too much for you to participate, or you can do it, but there's really no time for you to, to have access to a, to a pool. We need to make sure that uh, swim lessons are free or affordable, and we, we do that at LEAP. Um, and we need to make sure that we have places where children can learn to swim and then swim for fun. Uh, swimming is uh, a joyful um, and revolutionary activity um, in our community, um, and it's important that, that we make it um, accessible uh, as well. And Ryan, you know, you're the aquatics director for LEAP. Can you tell us about your role in that position? Yes. So um, I organize swim lessons for not only um, the New Haven uh, community, but as well as for um, the students enrolled in our after school program. Um, And for the community, we um, provide uh, free swim caps, um, goggles, towels, swimsuits um, to relieve that financial stress off of families. And what drew you to swimming in the first place? Um, So my mom um, never uh, was taught how to swim. So she put me in swim lessons at the age of five. And ever since then, I've been an avid swimmer. And um, I really connected to the ripple, the wave that carried me home, because truly being in water, like I feel like I'm in my element. It gives me power and peace, just like Helen said. Well, I was going to say you took the words right out of my mouth because I was <laughs> going to ask you, you know, you've been listening to this conversation and you actually saw the play that we've been we've been talking about. And so I guess I can ask more about, you know, what are your other thoughts of the play and the broader discussion? You know, did anything jump out to you, especially being a lover of, of swimming and going to see this play? Um, I really enjoyed how the play not only talked about um you know, the like the racism um, and like the historical racism of of swimming, but also drew in um, like police brutality um, that uh, people of color have to go through as well. And do you think that experience changes sort of your philosophy um, with your role at the Aquatic Center or not Aquatic Center, but at LEAP? Mm-hmm, definitely. Um, it's encouraged me to, um, I've ar- already had an idea to um, start a, a water aerobics um, class. And at the end of the play, um, the entire family uh, joins a water aerobics class. <laughs> That's amazing. And how has that reaction been? It's been good. That's really good to hear. I mean, swimming is such a fun time. And I, I echo my parents, neither of my parents swim. So they, of course, threw me into a pool. So thanks, parents. Um, I want to ask Henry real quick. We've got about two minutes left, but we know swimming is just one part of what LEAP uh, offers local kids. Can you talk about that? Sure. I mean, we also make sure that kids have the opportunity to camp outdoors. We think that's another place where where our kids haven't always had access. Um, And uh, we do a lot of work with literacy, um, especially uh, coming out of covid for young children, the, it simply was impossible to teach kids to learn to read on Zoom. And so um, we're doing a lot of work, as are the local public schools, in trying to help kids catch up. Uh, so we're doing a lot of work with, work with phonics, for instance, this summer that we're excited about and we're hoping will we'll help uh, make a dent in the already large um, 
uh, literacy gap that uh, that exists for children of color, low-income children of color, but was really exacerbated uh, by COVID. And finally, I think there's just a lot of opportunities for kids to interact and to have fun um, and just enjoy the summer. Uh, that's going to be our focus, uh, you know, through. Uh, uh, June, July, and, and the first week of August. So we're excited to have a big, robust uh, summer program that will include a little bit of learning, um, a lot of uh, outdoors activities, and uh, quite a bit of swimming as well. That sounds like the perfect plan. And if you're local to New Haven, you can find more information about LEAP's programming at leapforkids.org slash swimming or on our website at ctpublic.org slash where we live. You've been listening to Henry Fernandez, who is the executive director for LEAP for Kids, as well as Ryan Brooks, who's the aquatics director for LEAP. Thank you both so much for spending time with us today. Thank you. Thank you. I'm Catherine Shen. Today's show is produced by Katie Pellico. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Download Where We Live anytime on your favorite podcast app. And thank you so much for listening.